This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Chapter 34 in Isaiah, um, with the stench of the corpses rising and the blood flowing from the mountains, it's not um, a place we turn to for encouragement, typically. Um, If you map out sermon series and and as we work our way through the Bible and you see some of these passages, you're, uh, even as a a preacher, you're like, oh, man, what am I going to do with that? (laughs) And then then you go into the next chapter and it's like joy, amazing, uh, excitement. Um, It almost seems like a little bipolar uh, going from from one to the other. And I I hope to um, make a little sense of what's going on here. So, Let's first start with a word of prayer and just ask the Lord for his help uh, that we could see what he is communicating about himself, see what he's trying to do to change and transform us uh, through his word. Let's, so let's start with some prayer. Father, I thank you um, so much for your kindness to us. Lord, I thank you uh, even as we sing, uh, you make everything about us uh, that is broken beautiful. Lord, you are a God who is a redeemer. You are a God who rescues. You are a God who takes things that are wrong and writes them. You are a God who ultimately sent your son to die on the cross and allow us to come before you, a holy and righteous God, and cry out to you as our father, Lord. Lord, I pray as we look at your word this morning, I pray as we wrestle with the idea of the, of the final judgment um, in Isaiah as he's presented it, that it would be something that genuinely stirs our affections for Christ. It'd be something that genuinely draws us towards your son and makes us encouraged more and more with what you've done. And it doesn't stop there. I pray that it would be something that, that helps us care for and love others around us, Lord. That's, that's my desire. My desire is that your spirit would make us more in love with Christ and motivate us to care for and love those around us. So help us with that this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So this morning we're gonna focus on imagining judgment to love Christ and care for others. But I wanna start with a quote. Um, It's from a book that Ben and I, and I uh, I think even Christy was reading, called Habits of the Household. Uh, It's a it's a, uh, I've been enjoying it. It's got some really practical things on ways to just sort of consider uh, consider bringing Christ and the gospel into just like everyday rhythms of your life, especially the book is written sort of in the chaos of raising children also. So, so but it's an interesting book. The quote uh, should be up on the screen. Oh, perfect. I'll just read it from here. I like this quote because it talks about our imagination. It talks about what we, what we, how we use our, our imagination in a way that says to glorify God. It says a Christian is, not, is no ordinary observer of the world. Our faith asked us to believe that angels and demons exist, that a virgin gave birth, that a man named Jesus rose from the dead, and that a new kingdom is coming where we all get to celebrate and play happily ever after. Our faith asked us to believe that things are not the way they seem, And that despite what we experience, suffering and evil will not have the final word. This is not easy. In Christianity, you won't get very far without a healthy imagination. 
In Christianity, you will not get very far without a healthy imagination. That's not because this story of God is all made up, but rather because it is so real. The world is so much more than meets the eye. The world is so much more than meets the eye. I love, the, I love this reality that we won't get very far without a healthy imagination. We, we won't get very far without a healthy imagination. And so what, what, what the, how that's related to Isaiah is that he's, he's using these passages... He's been, he's been talking about all this sort of tumultuous things and, and we spent the last few weeks sort of uh, communicating that we're wrestling with difficult things. We're wrestling with difficult things and God is waiting for us to turn back to him so that we could be encouraged, so that we could be transformed, so that we could rest in his glory and his majesty. But as we're wrestling with all these difficult things, Isaiah is painting a picture here, is helping us use our imaginations to communicate to us that the wrestling will stop someday. Amen. That the struggle will end. That there is a day when everything wrong with the world, everyone who has rejected the Lord, everyone who is refusing the things that God is offering to them, who are enemies of God, there is a day where all of the wrestling will stop. There is a day for God's people, those who love him, those who, who are pleading with him and, and wrestling with what's going on in their heart and the world around them and that are, want, want things and want God's kingdom to come on earth. This is in heaven. There is a day when we won't wrestle with that anymore, when there will just be rejoicing and joy. There will just be glory and majesty and beauty and peace there won't be broken things in the world. There won't be frustration with yourself. There won't be things wrong that we want to ignore. Isaiah is helping us with our imaginations. He's communicating a future reality that someday all of the wrestling will stop. He's helping us imagine the final judgment. He's helping us imagine that. And imagining that actually motivates us to love Christ and care for others. And you might say, Aaron, imagining the final judgment sounds like the worst thing. We literally just read the chapter about blood pouring down mountains. And I was thinking about how we use our imagination to motivate us. How, how do we use our imagination already so take, take Isaiah and the crazy passage aside. How do we use our imagination to motivate us? Think about like trips you want to go on. I mean, you, why, I mean, you're looking at pictures on Instagram. You're kind of dwelling on it in your mind. You're thinking about it. You're like, oh, you're imagining all these things. And it motivates you to save. It motivates you to plan. It motivates you to arrange your life in a certain way. So as you look forward to that thing that you're imagining, it actually changes what you're doing in your life today. I was thinking about uh, why I have two trash bins at my house. One for all the cardboard from Amazon and one for trash. Part of that is because we imagined what the world would be like if we just didn't have two trash cans. Like we say recycle, 
because we're like, things could get really bad if we just don't care and we put trash and dump things everywhere and we don't reuse some of the resources that are in the world. We imagine what it would be like if we didn't make responsible decisions today. And so it changes what we do. It, it changes how we respond and what we react to in our, 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 our lives. Thinking about uh, working out, it's another good one. Like some of us negatively like imagine like, oh, the scale, you know, if I imagine that, I'm like, I'm fearful. Or I imagine like not fitting into like a shirt or something. And I'm like, oh man, if I imagine that. I'm like, I am motivated to not eat this, the delicious cookies that were at your house. Did you finish them off last night? <laughs> I was not imagining the scale at your house last night because it was so delicious. But, or we'll do it positively. We'll, we'll imagine like putting that next plate on the, on the bench, you know, so we can lift a little bit more. We'll, we'll imagine these like goals that we're, we're looking forward to. So we use our imagination all the time to motivate us, to change us, to encourage others and ourselves to do things. And here is Isaiah. Here is the prophet Isaiah helping us imagine judgment so that we could love Christ and care for others. I want to hit uh, a couple passages in the New Testament Testament, just to kind of make this point that there is a final judgment. There is a day when all of the struggling will end. Acts 17, verse 30, Paul says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. This is Paul speaking to a bunch of people who know not very much about the Bible. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Like he, he will judge fairly, perfectly, without any, uh, he can't be bought. He can't be convinced otherwise. He will judge perfectly because he knows all things and he knows our motivation. And he will do that by a man whom he has appointed and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's like, how do you know for sure that there's a man that will judge the world perfectly? I've risen someone from the dead. Like it's kind of a big deal. It makes a difference that someone has conquered the grave and risen from the dead. And that's how you can be assured that someday there will be an end to the struggle. Someday there will be a measure of final judgment. And you might say, well, that's Paul. Paul's kind of mean. He uh, doesn't say the nicest things all the time. So I thought we would uh, go back up a little bit in the story to some words from Jesus and look at Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus speaking from his, from his own mouth, chapter 25, he's talking to his disciples and he says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will, will answer him, will answer Jesus saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus, Paul, Isaiah are all communicating this reality that the struggle will end. There is a final day. And in Isaiah chapter 34 and in 35, he's trying to help us imagine what this judgment is. He's trying to help us imagine what this judgment is. There's a few things when we think about final judgment. One is that it's real and sure. Like it's certain and it's real. Both Jesus has gone through great pains in the gospels to communicate that to his people. Less often, Paul and others in the gospel, less often than Jesus have also communicated the same thing. Like there, there is this reality that someday all the secret things of the heart will be revealed. Someday all the people that got away with it won't get away with it. Someday all the people that were ignoring what God was communicating will have to come to terms with that. Someday all of us who are struggling with everything wrong with ourselves won't have to struggle with that anymore. It's certain. It's real, it's sure. But judgment, as we imagine judgment, for imagining judgment, it's also ugly. It's ugly and uncomfortable. I think the passage kind of bears that out in Isaiah 34. He calls to the entire world, calls to the entire world. Verse three says, their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. If you've ever um, been to a morgue, I have not, thankfully. Bridget has shared some stories with me where she had to get some work from the lab where she had to get random parts of brains out of people. So I think normally it was done for you. So if you want to ask her about that, you can. That's a weird part of her job. Not anymore. But uh, you hear people who have smelled death. They don't forget that. I don't know what it's like, and I would like to keep it that way. But like a rotting corpse is ugly. It's a 
it's just, I was, uh, I was watching a forensic files type thing and the, the, they were doing like a dig and they said that what they would do is they would smear Vicks on their face, like thick, so that they could, like, it would lessen the smell. Judgment is ugly. I mean, re- rejecting who God is as our creator and the results of that, like are, are meant to be imagined as ugly. Like it's not, it's not meant to be pretty. That's why he says, the stench of their corpses shall rise and the mountain shall flow with their blood. I can't even give blood without passing out. <laughs> which I found out when I tried to give blood. <laughs> Bridget gives blood just regularly for different reasons. She has to, and I can't even, like, the flowing of it, I can't do. I, like, I have to, like, look away. Just, like, seeing it in the tube, I just can't hang. I got to be really careful describing this right now. <laughs> the mountain shall flow with their blood. Judgment is ugly. It's meant to be uncomfortable. That's not a natural thing. Like, the shedding of blood is not how things were originally designed. That's a result of the fall. And it's interesting, too, in verse 4, he says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies rolled up like a scroll. In verse 5, he says, My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. You might be like, well, what is, uh, why is judgment ugly in the heavens? Because it's, it's not, I mean, we, we've said this many a times, it's not a battle of flesh and blood necessarily. It's not, uh, the, the, the Christian church isn't, isn't called to take up arms and go conquer lands uh, as, as we build God's kingdom. We build God's kingdom through the proclamation of the message. We build God's kingdom through the sharing of the gospel. We build God's kingdom by convincing everyone that there's hope as, as judgment is real. But behind all of that, there is a spiritual realm. Behind all of the, even the fall in the first Adam who disobeyed was deceived by the serpent. And, and, and the promise was that the Messiah would, would come and crush the head of the serpent too. That Satan and his minions would, would be the ones who fall. That they, We read in Matthew that the fiery place was, was set aside for Satan and his demons. Like there, God is ready to wield his sword and destroy all the spiritual forces that are behind all the broken things that are going on in the world. But, verse five, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Edom is like shorthand, as Jerusalem is shorthand for God's people, in Isaiah, and in other parts of the Old Testament, Edom is like shorthand for those who reject God. God is ultimately going to judge both in the heavens and on the earth. And it's ugly. Amen. And it's not pretty. He kind of communicates more of that, different pictures, talking about the, the slaughtering of lambs and goats. If you were an Old Testament saint and you were uh, dealing with the sacrificial system, the way that you draw near to God through the blood of bulls and goats, you'd be very familiar with a ton of graphic images when you bring your sheep to offer a sacrifice. When, when the king is coronated and there's thousands of sacrifices that are done and the blood is literally flowing from the temple, 
Thank God we live in the age where, where we can see the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. We can see that the blood shed on the cross once for all, so there's no longer any more need for sacrifice. Now, because of that blood that was shed, we can actually draw near and enjoy and see the glory and the majesty and the beauty of our creator. We don't have to be worried about these things. But if you were an Old Testament believer, and Isaiah is describing the slaughtering of bloods of lambs and goats and oxen and all these things, you would know what he was talking about. It would help you imagine the ugliness of that final judgment. Amen. It would help you imagine what was coming. So we said there's a few things we imagine judgment. It's real, it's sure, it's ugly, but it's also mixed with beauty. It's also mixed with beauty. The final judgment is also mixed with beauty, which I think is when we're reading the passage, it's almost like whiplash. We're like blood flowing from mountains. And then chapter 35 says there's, you know, in the original Hebrew, there's not like, a title and a number. It's like boom, boom, boom. It just keeps going. There's not this artificial separation that we see in our scriptures. When it goes from the last verse of 34 to 35, it says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. And you're like, whoa, what? Why all of a sudden do we have positive pictures? The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And he describes the, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And those are actually the same places in the previous chapter that God had destroyed. Like, like abundant places in Israel that God had destroyed were now all of a sudden in this final day, they're restored. They're restored. And he says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. He will come and save you. And he communicates some more beauty in, in light of all this judgment. Verse five and six, he says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. He's helping us imagine this final day of judgment that's ugly, but also has all these beautiful elements to it. He's like, deserts will overflow into gardens. People who can't speak will sing and praise and exalt and shout for joy. Just like that. He wants us to use our imaginations to say that there's this ugliness that comes from judgment, but there's also this beauty. There's also this majesty. There's also this rejoicing. There's, there's all of these good things that are, that are a result of everything that's happening. And it's interesting because these things don't seem like they should go together. These things don't seem like they should go together. But we've talked about this a bunch of times as we've worked through this section particularly, is that God is working to restore us. God is, is working to transform us more and more into his image through suffering. Or, or, or we could say it at the, 
refining fire. Like if you are gonna get pure gold to make something beautiful, you have to heat the temperature of the aura. You have to, to engulf it into flames. You have to destroy everything around it so that when it comes out, it's something that is very expensive, very beautiful, very precious. Think about the most popular Christian symbol. When I was growing up, uh, the it was called James Avery jewelry, like in the South. It's like the most popular thing ever. You can, like a cross. You can see it everywhere. That was not a very pretty picture when in the early centuries. There's actually, oh, uh, they found a carving on the wall that they think is graffiti. That's like two or second or third century that has a donkey on a cross that they think is like making fun of Christianity. Like here's your savior, a jackass dying on a cross. That's one of the earliest examples we have of the cross because it's humiliating, it's ugly. Stripped naked, nailed to it, pierced through, suffocating after being tortured. But it's so casually something good for us because we know the result of that. Like we make jewelry out of it because we know the fruit of that disgusting judgment that was poured out on Christ. Like we have a perfect example of the wrath of God producing something beautiful and glorious and worth rejoicing over. That's how he works. That's why we have these mixture of images here. So then why, if imagining the final judgment so ugly, but produces so much beauty, why does it make us so uncomfortable? Why is like this idea of God's judgment the least popular thing to preach on? I mean, I wasn't super excited when I saw the chapters coming up. I was like, oh man. I wasn't like, woo, judgment, you know. Why does it make us so uncomfortable? I think Isaiah hints at that. In chapter 35, he says, in the highway shall be there, verse eight, I'm sorry, verse eight, he says, in the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. The unclean shall not pass over it. Why does imagining judgment make us so uncomfortable? Why does this idea that God's refining fire produces something beautiful make us squirm? What do we wish Aaron might have been in a different passage this morning? I think part of it, I think part of it is we wonder if we'll pass through or we'll be the unclean thing that's burned up. 
because we know. Like, we can't help but know that we fall short of the glory of God. We can't help but realize there are parts of us that are unclean. I don't have to tell you. We can't help but know that God has communicated a standard for us and we fall short of that in some way, shape, or form. Can't help but realize we reject him a little bit in different parts of our lives. I think also we think about people that we care about Maybe we, or we think about our children, think about our friends, you know, people that are just like fun to be around, people that we love. We can't help but realize that there are impurity in ourselves and others. And we think about the reality of that final judgment. That's really uncomfortable. That's super uncomfortable. If it isn't uncomfortable to you, that's more discouraging. (laughs) It should be a little uncomfortable. It should be a little bit uncomfortable as we think about that. But here, I think, is what makes it comfortable and uncomfortable at the same time. It's verse 8. He says, for imagining judgment, it actually helps us encourages us to love Christ. It says the unclean shall not pass over it. Well, that's not encouraging. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I think it's like an interesting way to say it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if you're totally dropping the ball. Like a fool is not a good word in scripture. We could go through Proverbs and talk about all the terrible things about fools. It says, even if you're a fool, they shall not go astray. So, okay, well then, if it belongs to those, if this, if this beauty and this majesty and this rejoicing and all this good transformation in light of all this ugly judgment belongs to those who walk on the way or the way of holiness, what does that mean? How do we wrestle with this idea of the way? It's interesting, early Christians in Acts were called the ones who followed the way. The ones who followed the way. Why would the way be something that is so grips you to the point where you can be such a fool, you can be a moron, and you still aren't going to fall off the way, whatever the way is. Well, I think John helps us connect some of those dots. If we look at John 14, I have that passage on the screen. Jesus is talking about all these things that are about to happen to him and John. He's about to experience that judgment. He's about to have a sense of the disgusting and ugly nature of the cross, for real. On top of that, God is going to pour out his wrath on Jesus Christ. He knows it's coming. 
And he tells them that you guys are going to come with me, just not yet. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one makes it through the ugly of that judgment. No one passes through the the burning, ugly, burning sword of the Lord except through Christ. He's the way. And if you're united to him, if you if you see that you fall short of God, if the discomfort of judgment and the fact that I don't meet the standard that that God is saying, I I can't say I am unclean. In some way, shape, or form, I fall short. There's things about me that are not right. I'm a fool. Saying if you rest and trust in the way, in Jesus Christ himself, don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. He's the one who has done everything perfect. He's the one who is the spotless sacrifice. He is the one who is perfectly clean. He is the only way that you can pass through the judgment of God. He is the way. It's interesting. If we go back to Isaiah, I think the reality of imagining judgment And the fact that I would fall short of those things when Jesus is sitting on the throne and revealing the the evils of my own heart and just like the, almost the, the being terrified of that and remembering that I stand in Christ and remembering that everything he has done is why I don't have to fear those things gives me so much more appreciation for him. Jesus said it himself. He said, for those who are forgiven little, they love little. If you're pretty good and you're not worried about it, you aren't going to be that excited about who Jesus is. If you're forgiven much, if you understand that you wouldn't be able to stand in that final judgment because you've imagined that, you love him more because you know what he's done for you. You know that he's given you peace. You know that he's already passed through that judgment. So there's none left for you. And if we imagine judgment and it it encourages us to love Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, I think it can't help but help us care for others. It can't help but help us care for and love those around us. Isaiah hints at this a little bit. In verse six, he talks about the, the mute singing, the tongue of the mute sings for joy, but he says, for waters break forth in the wilderness in streams in the desert. Waters break forth in the wilderness in streams in the desert. It's this image of the land, as we imagine the land, that's dry and lifeless, sandy, I hate sand, it gets in everything, and waters pour out and it becomes a fruitful field. Waters pour out in colors like that come out of the ground. Waters pour out and things grow where they shouldn't grow. 
Jesus uses this metaphor in John 7 when he talks about what the Spirit will do. John 7, 37. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So it's another way to help us imagine our need. If we, if we are thinking about judgment and we fall short, it's another way to say we're thirsty and we don't have what we need. Let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. He's saying, I'm here for you. I've done this for you. I've offered myself. This is what I've, this is why I'm here. I'm, I want you to drink of me. I want, Jesus, Jesus wants you to imagine that and turn right back to him and say, this is where I stand. This is why I love him. This is why I'm confident. But he goes on to say, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, and he's interpreting Realities about living water, and he says, out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. Amen. Water will pour forth from the one who has come to me because I'm overflowing, because I've given you so much, because you love me. Now, I like the commentary from John. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He hadn't sat on his throne and poured out the spirits into our hearts, overflowing so much that we could pass through the judgment because of what Jesus has done that we care for and want others to have some of the same thing. We desire to see others rest in and know, and as we imagine this judgment, we, it's not just for us in Christ, it's for others, it's open, it's, it's free. We're wrestling with things today because it's not over. There's more opportunities. Today is the day of salvation. Today is where people could turn to Christ, see him, and have confidence that they too will pass through that very ugly judgment to beauty and glory and singing and majesty on the other side. If we imagine, if we use our imaginations like Isaiah is trying to get us to do with all of these pictures in these chapters. If we imagine judgment, it actually encourages us to love Christ and care for others. Because it's sure, it's certain, it's ugly, but it produces beauty and glory. Now, there might be... Um, an objection to this is that we shouldn't scare people into heaven. <laughs> you know, like, and I kind of grew up where that was a thing, you know? Like, I remember, this is like embarrassing to tell you guys. <laughs> I remember being at a camp in high school and like the moon was a different color. And I was like, oh dear Lord, I need to say the prayer and get baptized again. Like, I was like legitimately terrified. Like the end times are coming and God was gonna like light everything on fire. And I was like, ah, you know, like, like, like it was as a high school kid that was like rocked me a little bit, you know? Um, and, and I've been in those situations where, uh, you know, it's, uh, we, we like people are, 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 are giving fear and saying like, 
watch out and like ding like you uh, who wants to accept Jesus into their heart and get baptized today you should be worried about that you know like I, I, I'm I'm totally against uh, this reality of like scaring people into heaven like I'm not trying to that's not that's not what I want for you to be like oh I can't hang when God comes and comes to judge we can't it is scary we shouldn't avoid it the reality of it it's a real thing it's sure it's certain it's ugly but it should produce care for others. It should produce concern for people. It should produce love for our neighbor. It should make us plead with God and and desire to be an instrument of living water for other people. And I think, I mean, I don't think, I know that when Jesus did this, he did it perfectly. So let's look at Luke 23 real quick. I think this is a good example of Jesus not trying to to scare people, but also genuinely cared for people. Luke 23, starting in verse 26. At this point, at this point in the story, Jesus has already been beaten, mocked, flogged, spit on, He did all these miracles and they covered him, taking turns beating him and said, tell us who did it, prophet. Tell us who did it. And they decide to crucify him. And he's torn up. And in verse 26, says they, Luke 23, verse 26, should be on the screen. As they were led away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. They laid it on the other guy because Jesus was too beat up to carry it himself. Not because they had sympathy for him. He could barely handle his own body. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. You know, like, sounds good. Like, they're like, they feel bad for the guy. We don't know their motives. We don't know what they're thinking, but they were mourning what was happening to him. But turning to them, this is what Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Because things are so bad Blessed are those who don't have children. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's using imagery of final judgment. And there's some debate on like what he means by that. Could it be the fall of Jerusalem? Could it be the final judgment that Isaiah is speaking about? Could be any of those things. But he's saying, look at how I'm treated right now when things are fine. And you're concerned for me. I'm worried for you. I'm worried for you when God brings judgment. I don't think Jesus was beat up, broken, bleeding, about to be crucified, trying to scare people into salvation. 
He genuinely cared for them. He weeped for his people and said, I wish I could gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. He cried for his people and said, I know and have imagined judgment that is to come. And even as I'm suffering, I'm saying, I care for you. It's a real thing. There's where you should be concerned. Jesus was ready to be streams of living water to those who would accept him, trust him, lean on him, be encouraged by him. And because now he's poured out the spirit and you and I stand in Christ, he wants that water to overflow to others. He wants you to imagine judgment so that you would love him more in everything that he's done for you and have care for others. Have genuine care for other people's soul. It's a real thing. It's sure, it's ugly. He wants you to care for those around you. So where do you think God is asking you to be a stream of living water to others? Where do you think God is asking you to care for others? Who in your life have you avoided this thought about? What person makes you not want to imagine judgment? What do we do with that? I think there's a few things you can do. Be encouraged that the Lord wants to use you as a stream of living water. Like it, the whole point of that analogy is it doesn't stop with the people that love Jesus. Like it's meant to spread out. It's meant to fill the desert. It's meant to, to cover, the, Isaiah says the, it will, the, the living waters will cover the planet as the water covers the sea. That's what he wants to do. So be encouraged by that. It's not meant to stop with you. But also pray. You can pray. Pray to be used. Pray for God to open the doors as you imagine this judgment to be a light and to encourage people and to point people to Christ Amen. and to say that there's a way through. There's a way through that leads to beauty and majesty and glory beyond anything you could possibly imagine. Plead with God. Ask him to use you. Jesus tells an interesting parable about knocking on your friend's door in the middle of the night because you need some bread to host some friends. Your friend's gonna be like, go, I'm in bed, go away. But if you're persistent and you're like, I, dude, I need this, even your friend is gonna get out of bed and give you some bread. He's like, won't your heavenly father, if you're persistent, reward you for your persistence? If your friend will do that for you, plead with him, pray, ask, Get on your knees and say, Lord, I want you to use me as a stream of living water for these people that I care about. Pray, be encouraged. Don't be afraid to imagine judgment. Don't be afraid to think about the reality that the struggle is going to end someday. Imagine it. Like the quote said at the beginning, won't get very far in Christianity without a good imagination. Also love the way, love the way, Amen. love Christ.
Because here's the thing. If you're imagining judgment and it doesn't lead you to Christ as someone you need, you're probably going to come off a little self-righteous. You're probably going to be someone that's using it to scare people into heaven. If, the, if imagining judgment doesn't lead you to fall on your knees and thank the Lord for everything that he's done for you and continues to do for you and encourages you, then you're not in a good place to be a stream of living water to anyone. Jesus is saying, come to me, drink, embrace me, love me. He wants that for you. Someday the struggle will end. Amen. And it's scary. Someday the struggle will end. But if we imagine judgment, maybe not all the time, every day. We went through a bunch of other chapters before we got here. But it's there. It's real. It's ugly. Produces beauty. If we imagine judgment, the Spirit will use that to encourage us to love Christ more. Amen. And also care for those around us. And that's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us. And there's just some things that we don't want to wrestle with. There's some things that we want to avoid. Um, And your great day is definitely one of those. And yet, even if we're fools, we can't fall off the way. Lord, we rest in the beauty and the majesty and the glory of your son. We're so thankful that he is the way, the truth, and the light. And that we can come to you, our heavenly father, because we stand in him. Lord, I pray that your spirit would stir our hearts to care for those around us. But but before that, stir our love for your son. Lord, Lord, encourage us to embrace him and just be thankful every time we fall short of your glory and your majesty and say, Lord, you've, you've given me Christ. I love him and I want more. I want to see more of his beauty and majesty because I'm not afraid to imagine judgment. But as you, Lord, as you stir our affections for your son, help us pour those streams of living water out to those around us. Give us courage. Give us commitment to prayer. Give us a heart for those around us. In your name I pray, amen.